Father, it is an awesome thing that you've done for us in Christ. And we pray that you will help us to understand more of how to respond to your gift of grace. We ask this through Christ. Amen. A few years ago, Tony Campolo told a story about being at a Good Friday service in the, the uh, Philadelphia area church where he was uh, on staff. And it was, uh, in the words of some I've heard, it was one of those uh, preach-off services, you know, where you had seven or eight preachers and, and uh, everyone gave dynamic sermons. But he said by far the most dynamic and the most inspirational was the, the last one. It was by the senior pastor of the church and... He began to talk about the agony of the cross and the death of Jesus Christ. And he talked about the tomb and closing the, the stone over it and the despair and the hopelessness of all of that. And in the, mixed in with all of these negative words about death and suffering, he kept saying, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. I remember hearing Anthony or Tony Campolo talk about that and being inspired myself as he shared that story. And it wasn't too long after hearing that that I was reading through the Palm Sunday story once again and something clicked in my mind. What if we transpose those days? What if we, what if we switched them so that instead of, of talking about it's Friday but Sunday's coming, we talk about it's Sunday but Friday's coming. And it struck me that there might be something in that that speaks to what takes place here in the scripture we've read this morning and in our daily lives. Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem with his entourage and um, he hasn't been there for quite some time. He has been waiting. He's been staying away from Jerusalem because he knows that the minute he goes into Jerusalem and he begins to teach and he begins to, to do the, his miracles, the religious leaders are ready to pounce on him. And the time isn't quite right yet. And so he continues his ministry other places. But now the time has come. Mark chapter 10, verse 32 says, They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. And he took the twelve aside, and he told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. He knows exactly what it means for him to go to Jerusalem. But he goes because the time is right. But he comes into town a little differently than he's ever come before. He tells the disciples to go get the, the colt, the, the donkey. They bring it. He gets on it and he begins to ride in the city. And as he rides in, the, this entourage of people and other pilgrims who are there begin to throw their coats on the, on the road. And they throw palm branches on the road, which is a sign of... Of, of worship and a sign of regality and they, they're, they're coming to say this is the king. And they shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Hosanna means to save now. And they believe that this one riding on this colt is the Savior. And see, we, we would have a different perspective of that. If it were us now and we wanted a great conquering hero to ride into a city in triumph, we'd have them ride on a stallion. A donkey seems kind of humiliating. But in their day, that was the word. A donkey and it symbolized royalty and it symbolized the Messiah. And as they throw their cloaks on the road, as they shout these declarations of Hosanna, as they wave the palm branches and lay them on the road, they are declaring, we think this might be the one. And we want you to come and to save us. Psalm 118 that we read a few moments ago, surely is in their minds. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us. Grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we will bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession, up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his love endures forever. And they're believing that Jesus coming into the city is the Messiah who's going to free them from their oppression. They're thinking Egypt and God rescuing them. They're thinking of the book of of Judges when the people continued to turn away from God and were oppressed by their neighbors and then God rescued them. They're thinking of the exile and how God brought them out of captivity once again. And now they're saying, we believe this one riding into town is going to do just that for us. He's going to free us from the Romans He's going to free us from the enslavement of the religious system. He's going to set us free. And they proclaim that Jesus is the freedom fighter. Now, we don't know the size of the crowd that welcomes Jesus into Jerusalem, but it's the beginning of Passover week. Pilgrims would already be arriving. In fact, probably many of these people are pilgrims. Mark eleven eight says that there are many people there. It's not just a a few. There are many people. And it must have been an incredibly exciting, spontaneous, contagious kind of event. If you've ever been to a sporting event where the crowd's kind of quiet, but they're trying to get everyone riled up and something great happens and these guys block a section of the stadium. Usually they're painted up in different colors. You know, you've seen them probably. And they begin to chant and the people around them begin to chant and the people around them begin to chant until the whole stadium is chanting. And you almost can't help it. It's just so contagious, the energy that comes into that place. And I have a sense in my mind that it's that kind of energy. As Jesus comes into Jerusalem, they aren't just saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. They are shouting. They are jumping up and down. This is the day they've been waiting for. And Jesus rides into town. And over the course of the next few days, Jesus begins to clarify his message even more. He goes into the temple and he sees the religious people cheating everyone else in the name of God. And he overturns the tables and he whips them out of the temple. And he starts telling stories and parables and teachings that are more and more confrontational. 
And as the week progresses, the intensity raises. And then we come to Friday. And on Friday, there is a crowd gathered around Pilate's Hall. And that same kind of contagious energy is there too. And the people are shouting. But they're not shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Pilate stands Barabbas up there, this ruthless criminal. And he says, who do you want me to release, Jesus or Barabbas? Jesus who's done nothing or Barabbas who's a scourge on society? And they all yell, Barabbas, what do you want me to do with Jesus? Crucify him. Crucify him. And you have to wonder, how did we get from Sunday to Friday? Now there's a fair amount of evidence that the crowd on Friday is not the same crowd that welcomes Jesus into Jerusalem on Sunday. And that's probably true. It's probably didn't probably just pick up that whole group of people and plant them into Friday's crowd. But we know human nature well enough to know that there are certainly some people, maybe a number of people, who are cheering Jesus on Sunday and are crying for his crucifixion on Friday. If Jesus' closest friends desert him, how much more likely is it that these pilgrims and these people who, who just know of him will get caught up in the, in the crowd, will get caught up in what goes on, and be in the middle of that group yelling for his crucifixion? You have to wonder, how did they get to that point? What is it that creates this shift? Maybe the opinion of the people is shifting because Jesus isn't following the messianic plan that they want. You know, we are pretty, pretty good at, at narrowing the ways in which God can work. God works this way. He doesn't work that way. And when God works that way, we, our response is, that must not be God. And we are so good at putting God into boxes. This is the only way God can work. And that may be what's going on. It may be that they're just, they're, they've been listening to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees so long. And even though they're not quite sure they're right, they just sort of get swept up in the energy of what they're saying. I suspect part of it is that they aren't real connected to the way in which Jesus is going about this revolution. You know, as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he is making a profound political statement. He is saying, I'm the king. When they start throwing palm branches in the road and he's riding on the donkey and they start yelling, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, a clear indication that, this, that they believe this is the Messiah. Jesus doesn't say, stop that. Don't do that. That's not me. He does the exact opposite. In fact, in one of the other gospels, it's the people, religious leaders say to him, tell them to quit. He says, they don't say it, the stones will cry out. Because it's the truth. The problem is, Jesus' political statement, the political intrigue of that event, is not exactly what the people were hoping for. They want him to free them. They want to be released from oppression. 
And so what are they thinking? They're thinking weapons. Jesus is thinking love. They're saying to Jesus, what what do you mean no swords? What do you mean no weapons? You want me to surrender how? You want me to give up my life? I, I don't understand this. You don't want me to fight? Jesus, why aren't you saying something to Pilate? You could say something. They wanted Jesus to cut off Pilate's head. And Jesus stands there and takes it. Eventually, the decision to, comes down to feeling that the way that they see God at work is more expedient to their life than what Jesus is asking them to do. If you're like me, you, you read through this and as you do a number of things and you think to yourself, how could they be so stupid? How could they get from Sunday to Friday in a few days? How could people do that? What is wrong with them? And every time I'm tempted to say that, or I do say that, about people in Scripture, I, I feel this sort of angelic tap on my shoulder. Really? You're going to go there? You're going to do that? Because I can bring some people to talk about you as well if you want. And the truth is, we are as susceptible to making that shift as any of these people are. When Jesus leads us to places we'd rather not go, when Jesus speaks truth, we would rather not hear. When Jesus connects us with people, we would really rather avoid. When Jesus challenges us about things we would rather not experience, it reveals who we really trust. Do we trust God in his ways that we might not fully understand or are we going to trust in ourselves and, and, and default back to our what makes us feel secure? And Jesus is continually forcing us to choose. How often do we sing on Sunday, I have decided to follow Jesus and then on Monday refuse to even ask him where he wants us to go? How often do we make commitments to God in the midst of an emotional high and then we turn our backs on him the minute things don't go the way we want them to? Or we make great declarations to God when we're feeling pinched and then we slide back when into the status quo when the pressure eases off. I read about a couple of guys who were stranded on a raft out in the middle of the ocean. Food had run out, water had run out. They're pretty much uh, giving up hope. And as a last resort, one of the guys began to pray. He said, Lord, you know I'm a terrible sinner. You know that I've mistreated my wife. I've not been good to my children. I've cheated people. I've done all kinds of bad things. You know all about me. But if you would please save me, I promise. And just then his friend said, well, hold it. Wait a second. Stop your prayer. I think I might see land. We do that, don't we? Praising God on Sunday is a wonderful thing to do. But the direction of our hearts on Friday and Thursday and Monday and Sunday night, for that matter, speak deeply 
about who we are and what's really important. When we worship, when we leave worship on Sunday, how does that affect our work, our family, our relationships? Is there a correlation? Or are we saying, making great statements on Sunday and then living however we want to the rest of the time? Now, the answer is not to, to say, well, I'll make less declarations to Jesus then. You know, we're sort of toned down things. I'll just sort of, I'll, I'll lower my level of commitment to Jesus that matches the way I live the rest of the week. I don't think that's what God's asking of us. But rather to be so engaged with him and to so surrender to him that as we go to the rest of our days, the spirit of Christ is living in us and through us and it's changing the way we live. You know, hypocrisy is a, is a temptation and a struggle for all of us. It's part of the human condition to live one way on Sunday, to live another way the rest of the time, to make great declarations on one day and to do something the totally opposite the other day. It is a part of the struggle that we face, which is why surrendering when we're in worship, personal and corporate worship, is so essential so that the Spirit can fill us and make a difference in how we live the other days. Because the measure of our relationship with God is not when we're here. It's when we're not here. Genuine worship is not confined to the hour or so that we might come together on a Sunday. Genuine worship is about every moment of our life. Whatever day of the week it is, wherever, whatever the venue is where we find ourselves. And a lot of what God is asking of us is probably one of the things that the people on that first Sunday and throughout that week wrestle with. Embracing God's strategy, embracing God's desires for how we live in this world, particularly as it relates to other people. How do we treat other people? I was at a meeting recently where we were talking about the issues of sanctification and holiness and purity and those kinds of things. And it was evident as we were talking about this that all of our mind was basically around that we were, we were viewing those things as I'm not doing this particular sin. And I realized that's important and that's true, but it's so much more than that. God is not calling us to be to be holy people so that we don't just do sin, but so that we engage in the kinds of activities that he wants us to. And a lot of that has to do with relationships. How do we treat one another? How do we care for one another? How do we embrace one another? I was at the justice conference that the uh, college hosted a few weeks ago and one of the things that really spoke to me was the issue of advocacy. As they talked, you know, it said very clear, we need to continue compassionate ministries. People need to eat and people need clothes to wear and a place to live. And you know, some of those basic necessities, we need to keep helping them with that. And we're doing a lot of that. But I've tended to shy away from advocacy because it feels political to me. You know, we're going to go talk to politicians about things and 
And I think part of that is because I have tended to hear people say something like, I'm gonna, we're going to talk to our politician and make sure they are going to help us maintain our rights. But as that day went along, what was evident to me is that the kind of advocacy they were talking about was going to people who have the ability to make decisions in government and say to them, look, I'm not here about me. I'm here about people who can't be here. I'm here to be a voice for people who don't have a voice. I am here to represent people who society continually shoves to the margins, continually uses and abuses. People of society that in which all that our culture has created seems to just naturally put them in a place to lose. I'm here for them because I believe our government needs to care about that just as our churches care about that. And I believe that is one of the ways in which God wants his people to be involved in the world. So that we don't just, but we don't just talk about it on Sunday. We're actively involved about it the rest of the week. Because we care about people as Jesus does. So much of our ideas about our faith is what is God doing for me? How is God blessing me? And there's a point where that is true, but if that's our primary focus, we've missed it. Our primary focus is loving God, letting him fill us so that we can love others. And hopefully, our times of worship, corporately and privately, are such that the Spirit is filling us and teaching us and working in us that as we encounter the difficult things of life, we treat people the way He wants us to. And let's be honest, most of the difficulties that we face in life have to do with people. You know? We're the cause of that for a lot of other people. Other people cause us heartache and pain and difficulty. And somewhere in the middle of that is the grace of God so evident in our lives that even with people who mistreat us, even with people who may not like us, even with people who have different ideas about things than we do, even with people we would rather avoid, there is something of the Spirit of Christ that they see and feel and hear in us. Being a follower of Christ is not just about the high moments of worship, as wonderful and necessary as those are. It's about the daily, every day, every moment, the difficult experiences too. It's Sunday. We're here. Friday is coming. When it arrives, when we leave this place and we live out our lives the rest of the week, who will we be? Which of these two groups of people will we look more like? I'm pretty sure that 
Friday is a much more accurate description of the direction of our hearts and the direction of our lives than Sunday might be. Heavenly Father, in this moment of silence, help us to hear you. Thank you for loving us enough to reveal our need and to help us. And we pray that you will give us grace to live each day as you called us. Not in our power, but in yours. Through your spirit living in our hearts. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen.